It's not often that I get to interview someone who's also been personally denounced by Boris Johnson, but today's my lucky day. I'm joined by podcaster and former Tory MP Rory Stewart, and we talk about his time on the Conservative benches, why Jeremy Corbyn was really kicked out of the Labour Party, and just what are the relationships between the intelligence services and our elected officials. Um, Rory, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. There aren't many former Tories who'd be brave enough to step into Navarro HQ. Are you confident in making it out alive? Uh, I think it's... No, you do feel brave. Um, the um, We're here because, as you remember, you and I uh, did a thing together at the BBC, which ended really with us having a, a rolling argument on the pavement that went on for about 40 minutes. So I, I, I definitely come in quite nervous. Oh, don't worry. It's going to be, I think, um, less weird because Lawrence Fox isn't here. So no one's going to be asking anyone what colour their underwear is. Um, I mean, just to get started by talking about the book, um, I mean, there tend to be like three broad kinds of political memoir. There's I'm getting my skeletons out of the closet because I want to run a high office. There's I'm settling old scores. And there's I'm setting myself up for secular sainthood. I mean, where do you sort of see this one? Well, so I'm really interested. I've never seen anyone analyze it in those three ways. So you think it's about kind of getting your dark secrets out, or it's like, taking revenge on other people or it's like projecting yourself as the same. I think there are two types of political memoir. I think there's the, I'm going to try to defend my record and vindicate myself, or I'm preparing myself for another run. So usually I find the thing with political memoirs is it's either a really boring and slightly over-detailed account of the blow-by-blows of some piece of political administration that nobody can remember by the time the book's published, like I want to put it on record that, you know, 20 years ago with my new design of welfare policy, I was trying to do the right thing, but the civil service screwed me over. Or this is the audacity of hope. This is dreams of my father. I'm setting myself up for a See, I thing. thought that was skeletons out of the closet. So that was Barack Obama being like, okay, yes, I did drugs and you're not going to get me no, on that for the campaign this, trail. This, no, but this tells us a lot about, 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 um, about, about your views on politics. Because I think you should be a politician, and I think you're too worried about skeletons in the closet. So you imagine that what he's doing there is trying to get skeletons. The truth is, nobody cared. Nobody's interested, really. In in that book, this wonderful book, I don't think anybody really cares about the fact that he did cocaine or that he had dreams about men or any of this stuff. I I think that might have been true 30 years ago. I, I do think that politics got many, many problems, but one way that it's got better is it's really easy as a politician now to say, I've taken drugs, I've had mental health problems, uh, I, I'm going to reveal my sexuality. I mean, this stuff is 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 not an issue. The issue is other stuff. I mean, we're held accountable for other stuff. Being your personal lifestyle choices uh, were things that killed people in the 1990s in terms of their political careers. And now I think, I can't think of any politician active really in British politics today whose personal lifestyle choices has any impact on their Well the charge is hypocrisy that gets you. So I think if you put it all out there and you tell the story on your own terms, you could kind of, you know, have but, but, done but, some pretty but, but even but even then, I mean, you know, when I when I came out and said that I'd um smoked opium in Iran when I was running for leadership and then Michael Gove was out for doing cocaine and people said, Oh, you know, this guy Gove was very, very strict on crime and was all about like putting people away for touching drugs and made these very moralistic speeches. It was like a four-hour sensation. It had no abiding impact on him at all. 
why do you why do you think that is is your sense that political culture's changed totally changed i don't think people are interested in personal life so we're so used now we know the celebrity drenched culture where everybody's confessing all the time where every book that anyone reads by an actor a sports star a politician is basically about you know the fact that they're fucked up that they so i i think that's that's the one thing that I mean, and we were talking before I came on about how you sometimes think that what would stop you being a politician is that you've made funny comments about Kent or that you've um, or that you've you've um, taken drugs. I, I really don't think you need to worry about that at all. I think there's many. I other think things I to think worry about. I think the, I say that because I'm being glib, and that's an easier way to say I don't want to do this than the truth, which is that I don't want to do this. Ah, well, that's that's, that's good. That's and good. So I, can I say like, that. oh, it's because I live too exciting a yeah. personal life, whereas actually I just, I don't really want to. I mean, I, I want to kind of come back to what this is though. Like, what do you want this book to do? I want this book to explain how shameful uh, politics has become, how much worse than any conceivable version of ourselves we've become. And maybe that's too too grand. But the, the gap, I suppose, between the way in which we perceive politics and the reality of what it is, the kinds of corroded personalities that are formed, not just in the Conservative Party, but in all parties, the way in which campaigning and the media cycle and the whips and the parties turn you into something you don't want to be. So it's about the moral damage of politics and the ways in which I believe that moral damage stops you from being able to govern well, that there's a connection between kind of dissolution of these institutions and the very poor quality of government. And I suppose the hope is that politics on the edge is also designed to try to, by making people focus on the problems, begin to think about what the solutions to these problems might be. Because when you're talking about the degradation of politics and the kind of moral disintegration that comes from being a politician, you're talking about, you know, it made me this kind of venal and obsequious and insincere person. Um And I read that and I was like, I think all those things might be true. And I think that if you detect a change in your personality, you'll go, this is the degradation of it. But other people will point to a voting record and go, well, there's the degradation of politics. It's not really about how you feel about yourself. It's about what you did with power when you had it. I mean, how how do you feel about that kind of retort? So, um, well, let's, let's start. I mean, there's so many interesting things to talk about. Let's start with voting record. So the voting record... And this is something I try to explain in the book. There's a lot about voting record at the moment. I mean, the basic deal on me is somebody says something nice about me and then Twitter is full of people like saying, look at his horrible voting record, right? The voting record tells you nothing really about me, what, except for the fact I was a member of the Conservative Party. Ditto if you were to put up the voting record of a Labour MP. It doesn't tell you much about them. It tells you that they're a member of the Labour Party. There are a few exceptions. You know, Jeremy Corbyn rebelled a lot. Jacob Rees-Mogg rebelled a lot in the Conservative Party, but by and large, the British political system, and I try to explain why, for better or worse, is a system where parties are very disciplined and people don't rebel and they deliver on the manifesto. So for me, I accepted that 
when people vote in a constituency for a Conservative MP or a Labour MP, they are not voting primarily for me as an individual. They're voting for a party and they expect the party to deliver that manifesto. And in some ways, if you, I mean, let me sort of flip it around. If you were a Labour voter and you had voted for a manifesto which included, I don't know, a wealth tax and an increase to welfare benefits, and your Labour, local Labour MP was like, in the agonised depths of my soul, I've decided I don't want to do that because, you know, my view on the fiscal position of the country is different. You would legitimately be pretty angry. You'd be like, no, I voted Labour. I want Labour. I barely know who this person is. And if they've actually done that, um, they've actually betrayed the whole thing. So I think systems which believe, and this is what the you know, they work for you, voting record stuff believes that every individual is making a principled decision on every vote, are 18th century systems. They're not how democracies work. They're not how parties work. They're systems, in fact, where you end up often, and this is a point that Burke makes about the 18th century, with corruption, because you end up with individual MPs selling their votes on every subject. And the whole thing gridlocks while I sit there stroking my chin and saying, Oh, I'm not really sure about, you know, line seven of the budget. But maybe, you know, if you pork-barreled your way to, you know, dueling the A66 in my constituency, I could find my way to voting for the VAT on passage. So I think for me, you keep your rebellions against your party for the really big issues. And for me, there were constitutional issues. And ultimately, there was an issue about Boris Johnson and his version of Brexit, which I couldn't support. And, but at that point, you have to understand that that's not staying in the Conservative Party. That's leaving the Conservative Party. So I resigned from the cabinet. I was thrown out of the Conservative Party. I became an independent. That's what the cost of rebellion is. So the voting record tells you that I'm a Tory. And if you hate Tories, you hate me. But it doesn't tell you much about me. I mean, I hear what you're saying in terms of you know, the problem with They Work For You is that it's not taking into account that maybe there's a different kind of democratic expectation that I will carry out the manifesto that I was voted in on. And I understand that. And I understand that there's another part of you which is saying, look, don't hate the player, hate the game. Yeah. The game is that I have to do these things, otherwise I'll be really, really punished. And there's a structural issue here. Well, not not, not just punished. I actually, uh, it's, um, I mean, to take it to the extreme, as a government minister, there is collective responsibility. If you vote against the government once, you have to resign as a minister. So you simply cannot, in the period from 2015 to 2019 when I was a minister, uh, every vote is a choice between either continuing to do your job as a presence minister or an environment minister and get your policies through, or resigning. But isn't there also a case that having rebellious backbenches is healthy for a democracy. I mean, you mentioned Jeremy Corbyn, but it doesn't have to be Jeremy Corbyn. It could have been... It was Jacob Rees-Mogg. You know, Kate party. Hoey, even. Yeah. Someone who has very strong opinions on things and is like, I'm going to vote the way of my conscience. And they might have constituents that are frustrated with them, but in many other ways, they can be a kind of lightning rod for a dissatisfaction with politics as it is. Like, do you recognize that that is also a valuable thing to have in parliament? Um, yes, but it only works if very, very few people are doing it. A system in which uh, the majority of MPs are doing that on every vote is an unworkable system. The Labour government would not be able to deliver its manifesto. I, 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 again, I get this, that 
if you have to think about the structures rather than the individuals. But so, so there I are people who've personal, made different personal, choices in different yeah, parts. Personal question. I could have decided that I could come in and be Jeremy Corbyn or Kate Huey. So I could have been a backbencher applauded by a group of people who developed a little Rory cult. I would never have been a minister. I would never have been in government. I would never have been able to achieve any of the things I want to do. I'd gone into politics to change things, not to be a commentator. And I think backbenchers who take those positions, very understandably, essentially become commentators. They're not governing. Is there a part of you which looks at the role you have now, which is as a commentator, you know, you talk about politics and the rest is politics, you're no longer a pundit, and you feel that that's an impoverished part to play in politics? Yes, of course. Of course. I mean, obviously, in, in, um, you know, I, I didn't, I, I, I left school and I joined the army. Then I joined the foreign office. Then I ran an NGO. Then I worked in university and then I became a politician. I never um, wanted to be a commentator. I like running things. Um, and... Look, I'm I'm very lucky to be able to talk on the podcast. But if you honestly said to me, would I rather be prime minister or would I rather be presenting a podcast? I would rather be prime minister. I once spoke to Johnny Mercer, who told me that he'd never voted conservative until he became a conservative MP. Had he voted? Um, I don't think he had. And he was just quite open with saying, I thought this was the best route for power. And so that's why I joined the party. Um, is that how it was for you? It was less about a deep ideological affinity and more, well, if you want to get things done, you back the winning team. No, I was a, I was a conservative. I mean, not this type of conservative, not a Boris Johnson, Liz Truss, Rishi Sunak conservative. But I'm a sort of old-fashioned Tory, which is a very difficult thing to explain. Um, so what, what did it mean to me? It meant that I had seen in Iraq and Afghanistan, new labor for being a technocratic centralizing project that was projecting rigid fantasies onto people's lives that was in Afghanistan, insensitive to local communities, to landscape, to texture, to culture. And I, feel as a lived experience that I believe in tradition, particular kind of love of country. I believe in you know, restraints at home, prudence abroad, landscape, the wisdom of local communities. These are the kind of things that that made me a conservative. I mean, it's a phrase you use a lot in the book. You talk about love of country. What does that mean? Because I would say I have love of country. And I think you say you have love of country. And I wonder if we mean the same things or very different things. Oh, I think we mean very different things. I mean, people often say to me, I don't know. I mean, I don't know you well enough. But people often say to me, you know, why are you not a Labour MP? And yes, it's true. There are many things I agree with the Labour Party on. I agree that... Uh, we live in a shockingly unjust society that extreme poverty is probably our most shameful problem, that 
I agree with some Labour MPs, but apparently not with Keir Starmer, that our prison system is a complete disgrace and that we should be much more liberal in our criminal justice policy. Obviously, I voted for gay marriage. I voted to increase um, international development spend to 0.7% GDP. I voted for net zero, etc. So the question then is, well, why are you not Labour? It, it, probably the same answer you get from Johnny Mercer, although he maybe doesn't articulate it like this, that, like me, he was an army officer. He was an army officer much longer than I was, an army officer for a very brief period. But if you think about um, how I feel walking to a war memorial, for example, with my little kids and my mm-hmm. constituency, which we did every November, with my little medal on my chest, and um, I think it's different to how Jeremy Corbyn feels. I mean, these are these are... These are different versions of, of What do of you feel when you approach the war memorial? Like, what is the imaginary of Britain that's working for you there? And how is that different from Jeremy Corbyn's imaginary? I don't want to speak for Jeremy Corbyn, but my sense is that the tradition that he comes from, from the left, is deeply sceptical about many of the things that, for me, I think he almost certainly is deeply skeptical, grew up in a tradition that was um, more pacifist, more skeptical about military, more um, doubtful about Tory countryside and not very interested, particularly in the sort of things I'm interested in, the fates of small farmers and rural areas. Didn't, and, and above all, I think the difference between the left and the right in the traditional thing is that the left is dedicated to progressing, to transforming, to, to changing the world. Whereas the my form of kind of Burkean conservatism is largely about venerating the past. It's about saying, this is a miraculous, wonderful country, and we're going to change very cautiously and very slowly. I mean, that's the, the basic tenor of difference. He, he, he starts from a position of... Um, and I think it's even true with Alistair Campbell. Right? I mean, Alistair Campbell's, you know, obviously right on the right of the Labour Party. But even he and I are completely at odds on these things. You know, he, he instinctively, class is an important part of this. Right? He instinctively looks at someone like me. He doesn't like people who have accents like me, who go to the kind of school I went to. He, he, he's celebrating a different vision of Britain. Yeah. But um, again, bringing this back to the idea of love of country and what does that mean for the left versus the right? Um, and nationalism. Sorry, let me add to this. So the left has never been very comfortable with nationalism. Understandably, it arose out of a movement of international solidarity in which borders were not deeply significant. Now, the working class has no country is well, the yeah, Marxist yeah, phrase. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, a lot of the left-wing tradition owes an enormous amount to those intellectual roots and was very suspicious of, of people trying to uh, talk about country. It was much more about looking at material facts. You know, what are the economic truths about the difference between working people and capitalists uh, uh, would be a classic question. It's much less about flags regiments, uniforms, the monarchy. I'm, I'm incredibly proud of the British monarchy. I imagine Jeremy Corbyn isn't. I mean, you know, he, he probably went through the ritual of seeing the Queen, but I don't imagine in heart of hearts, if you shined a 
thing but, of him. He's particularly does, excited do about Do you have to love these institutions to love this country? No, because no, when, no, of course not. Of because course when not. I think about yeah. um, the difference between the English history that I'm proud of, the English history that I think needs to be interrogated and criticised and learned from, I think about things like the Lancashire cotton famine, an incredible act of solidarity on the part of Lancashire cotton mill workers who refused to work with slave-produced embargoed cotton, even though that meant for themselves, starvation, right, in some cases, and rioting. And I think about that and I go, what a beautiful thing that happened in this country that I never learned at school, never learned that in school, never learned that in history classes. So, so, so actually, I mean, on that, I think our schools are much too rigid. I think our narrative needs to include that very much. And I think we need much more local history. And I think there's an opportunity for teachers, particularly in teaching local history, to tell those forgotten stories. I think that is something to be proud of, something I'd be deeply proud of in British history. It's not something to push aside. But but my version of British history includes that, and it includes other things that I don't think would interest but you. But then if you need me, well, it doesn't. it's not that it doesn't interest me. It interests me very much, but I come at it from a more critical angle. Sure. I look at the army, I look at its recruitment in deprived, impoverished areas of the country where there aren't other economic opportunities. I look at the role that the army has played around the world, the British army in many cases. Think about how that intersects with my own family history. And for me, a war memorial is a reminder of the tragic loss of young life rather than something that instills me with pride. Apart from, I think, World War II. Then you go, you guys were doing something really good here. Yeah, no, but I think you've put your finger on it. I mean, these, these, so when you say, you know, why did I join the Conservative Party? These are deep differences, which in many cases go back to our childhood, the books we've read, our beliefs, our moral values. And they make me a conservative, a sort of conservative left, a wet. I'm a Tory wet. I'm. You don't think Mrs. T would have rated you very much? No, Mrs. T would not have rated me. And I think, and I think I'm not really a voice for the technocratic centre either. So I disagree intellectually with the way Tony Blair looks at the world. And I disagree morally with the way that people like Boris Johnson behave. I'm trying to hold a particular tradition in politics, but it, but obviously it, it goes without saying that that is a different tradition to yours. I mean, I, I want to move on from Jeremy Corbyn, but I mean, it's kind of striking that he's another 2019 casualty, right? Um, in the early chapters... Incidentally, I think it's disgusting. He was thrown out of the Labour Party. Just as I also think it was pretty peculiar that Boris Johnson kicked out two chances, the Exchequer, six cabinet ministers, Winston Churchill's grandson, and the rest of us out of the Conservative Party. I mean, it's mad. Jeremy Corbyn, whatever you think of him, is a major figure who represents a very significant part of Labour history and heritage. He was the leader of the party. Why do you think Keir Starmer did it? I think he is running a very controlling business with about three or four people trying to micromanage the Labour Party. I think he lacks confidence. I mean, I, I, I believe in politics as being about embracing difference and compromise and persuasion and conversations amongst different people. I was proud to be in debates on Afghanistan with Jeremy Corbyn. I listened to him carefully. Paul Flynn I liked a lot. And I think that Parliament is better when it encompasses those people. 
Now, I don't think that's necessarily about the voting record, but I definitely think it's about voices and personalities. I mean, in the early chapters of the book, you talk about your intense interest in foreign affairs, and you also talk about feeling very marginalized in lots of ways from the party that you're in. And I thought about Jeremy Corbyn. You're both individuals who could be accused of having more to say about Kabul than Carlisle. I mean, do you ever feel that, that there is a kind of similarity or kinship or shared experience? Yes. I mean, I really liked him. I mean, I really liked him. And I found him thoughtful, courteous, and he was much closer to being right about Afghanistan and Iraq than most of the Labour or Conservative parties. I think, like all of us, and probably true of me too, sometimes ideology got in and sometimes he simplified things. But broadly speaking, his fundamental insight, which was that these things were a mess, that we entirely lacked, we, the United States and Britain, lacked legitimacy, lacked knowledge, lacked power, and that our presence there was fundamentally unwelcome and that the idea of putting in 100,000 troops and spending $150 billion a year to try to nation-build someone else's country was mad, um, was correct. I think where I differ from him is, is, is that I still believe that there is a possibility for a more thoughtful, nuanced form of a liberal global order. I don't... I think he sometimes has tendencies towards isolationism. He tends to assume that Afghanistan had just been much better off if we just left. And my view, I guess, was there was another way. I mean, but maybe this is always my problem with politics, right? I'm trying to chart a third way. I had a vision of a very light footprint with a few troops, but where the Afghan government was actually running things and where you didn't have to choose between an insane American-led occupation on the one hand or a Taliban government on the other. I mean, is there a version of a... a global liberal hegemon, which doesn't require having very deep ties with deeply authoritarian and illiberal states. I mean, I'm thinking here about Britain's relationship with Saudi Arabia. I'm thinking about Britain's relationship with Israel, thinking about um, the sort of historic role of America in terms of right-wing paramilitaries in South America. I mean, is it just a bit of, you know, the liberalism is, is a nice garland around what is actually a very bloody business. I mean, I have to believe that there is a sort of middle way between doing too much and doing nothing at all. I think that the collapse of the liberal global order, which has basically happened since the early kind of 2010s, hasn't made the world a better place. I think the it's true that the centrist liberal vision was completely discredited. The economic vision was discredited by the 2008 financial crisis, the particular vision of prosperity and democracy by the rise of China, the, the idea of this a global policeman by the humiliations of Iraq and Afghanistan. So I can understand why the response to that has tended to be to turn away from all those things. But since that period, you know, the number of democracies in the world has begun to drop dramatically. We're talking when we've just had seven military coups across Africa. In the high day of this period that I'm skeptical about, the kind of Blairite Clinton period from 1989 to 2005, the number of democracies in the world doubled. 
global poverty significantly decreased. The world was getting more peaceful every year. And since 2014, the world has been getting more violent every year. There are more refugees, more displaced people. The number of democracies has been falling. So I don't think that, and, and I'm worried that the right and the left are sort of combining on this, that the right, because they don't really care about other people and they think it's none of their business. And they don't want to get involved in other countries. They're cutting international development. They don't want to know. It's the kind of Trumpian view. And the left, because the left has become so idealistic and guilty and self-conscious that they feel that everything we do in the world just makes things worse and that we need to go through some period of um, self-abnegation and that somehow, by implication, Somalia would be better off if we just left and handed over to al-Shabaab. But... Again, thinking about the relationship between liberal and illiberal states, I mean, isn't there an extent that the things that we enjoy come from some of these horrible relationships? I mean, you know, in the 90s and the 2000s, most of London got sold off to Russian oligarchs. And we're belatedly trying to correct that mistake now, but doing the same with, you know, the Saudis. When I say I still think there's something that can be done between doing too much and doing too little, it's a vision of compromise. It's a vision of working with lesser evils. It's a version of if you were working in sub-Saharan Africa, saying, yeah, um, you know, maybe we actually can work with the government in Zambia or Malawi, maybe even the government in Rwanda, but we're not prepared to work with the government uh, in Zimbabwe and we're not prepared to work, um, I don't know, with the government in Central African Republic or Niger or Chad or Mali or Burkina Faso. So now does that mean that I'm saying that the governments with which you're working are governments that you can defend on every moral grounds? Absolutely not. You're, you're, but, but then, of course, I might flip that around and say, as you just pointed out, our own countries are hardly perfect either. So I think you're... you're the, I'm not talking uh, about perfection. I guess I'm, I'm thinking about what the real material webs yeah. of well, let's, let's take, alliance yeah. and well, let's, financial let's, let's support take, have let's entailed. Uganda, for example, which is a very interesting example at the moment. So Uganda um, was a sort of darling of the West when we suddenly took over and it felt like this sort of much more progressive pro-Western government was coming in. And we didn't pay much attention to increasing authoritarianism and movements against opposition parties and the solidification of that kind of one-party rule. And then when he began to take action against the LGBTQ community, suddenly Uganda became the number one thing that everyone wanted to talk about. Uh, and it was very interesting because it it implies that our values can shift quite quickly in what we consider to be a bad country or a good country. How do we evaluate civil rights against political rights, against economic rights in these contexts? And I don't think we have any steady path on that. And what I tend to experience is that we tend to be most moralistic about the weaker, poorer countries. And we find it very difficult to be critical of the Chinas, the Gulf states, 
or countries which really have real economic heft and power and where our interests are at stake, it's very easy to uh, look at a country in sub-Saharan Africa and be like, ah, this is a very, very bad government and we don't want anything to do with them. Um, it's much more tricky to work out how you respond to Narendra Modi in India. I mean, I want to move on just a bit. I mean, one of the things that was quite striking about reading the book is that it seemed to me that your that what you saw of Boris Johnson and Michael Gove and how they behaved in power, it had a profound impact on how you saw them as individuals. Would that be a fair characteristic of how you felt? Yeah, yeah. Um, and I guess there are others, like Theresa May, Amber Rudd, who you maybe felt were more honourable. Yeah, or David Gork, who's one of great heroes in the book, yeah. Um, why? What's the difference between a Theresa May and a Boris Johnson? Um, so I, I think one of the problems, I mean, I, I may be being unfair to, to, to you and people watching this, but I think from the point of view of somebody who's radically and profoundly out of sympathy with the Conservative Party, there's literally no difference. I mean, these are tiny, nuanced differences which if you're looking at it from 10,000 feet up, you don't care, right? They're all as bad as each other. Um, obviously, I'm seeing it much more intimately. I'm there. So what I care about is that Theresa May is genuinely trying to, towards the end, reach out to Labour and get a compromise, soft Brexit deal across the line. And she's not falling into the trap of either going for a hard Brexit or trying to push for a second referendum. She's not, she's not putting herself behind the kind of U-shape in British politics where all the votes are in the extremes. She's trying to uh, reunite people. She's trying to compromise. Or David Gork, you know, he worked with me to renationalize the probation service, which had been privatized by conservatives. Now, it doesn't seem like a big thing, but it was a very big thing, right? Because the colleagues who did that were still sitting in the cabinet. It takes political risk to do that. Or we decide to bring together a paper to abolish short sentences in prisons to reduce the prison population. Again, you're taking risk against the Daily Mail. You know, I had a big front page saying the minister gives green light to criminals, etc. So I think a bit like anyone listening who works in any institution, you begin to get a sense in your office or your charity or your company or your department that there are good people and bad people. Um, now, Structurally, maybe we're all bad people, um, but obviously I believe in the importance of moral character. I, I, I don't fundamentally see the world in terms of fundamental economic structures. I suppose I don't know what the moral character of Theresa May is like, and I don't know what the moral character of Amber Rudd is like. But when I think about them as politicians, I don't think about it from 10,000 feet up. I think about it from the perspective of a man who we interviewed for an article who, because of hostile environment policies, was driven to the point of removing his own teeth. And I think about people whose grandparents were deported to Jamaica. Their families were broken up and some of those people died overseas. Many of them are still waiting for compensation. And I get that for you, Theresa May was playing a very different role that you saw in terms of protecting the fundamentals of the British constitution and trying to protect the integrity of our democracy. But for me, when I look at those things and their impact on ordinary Britons, I also hate that phrase, ordinary Britons, because there's no such thing. Like, we're all bizarre as a country. Um, but when I, when I think about 
the impact of those policies on people without power. I've got no love for Boris Johnson. I've got no love for Jacob Rees-Mogg. But I think that maybe the evils they did to their parliamentary colleagues aren't as bad as the evils that were done because of the hostile environment. So it's not the evils there parliamentary colleagues. It's that Boris Johnson, from my, if I try to describe what I find wrong about him, he lied to the Queen in order to lock the doors on Parliament, in order to drive through a Brexit deal that had no consent from the legislature. He was overruled by the Supreme Court. Then he attacked the Supreme Court. These were people who claimed that they'd done Brexit because they revered an independent British Parliament and an independent British court. And as soon as those things frustrated them in the classic moves, the populists. They just rubbished those institutions. He lied to Parliament and then tried to change the ministerial code, which said he should resign from doing so to prevent himself from having to resign. He took and did not declare an £800,000 loan guarantee from Canadian businessmen. He enabled MPs that he knew to be um, people who'd been involved in sexual harassment to return to office and lied about that too. He set and broke his own COVID regulations. He showed a total disregard for the most basic competence of government. He presided over a Brexit that undermined security in Ireland, that impoverished our economy. I mean, so he represents for me something that where the moral character of the individual and the calamitous impacts are one and the same. They derive from the same immorality, the same irresponsibility, the same lack of seriousness. But do you see my point about this kind of very direct and visceral impact on someone's life that the hostile environment had? And that maybe some of the things that you're talking about, I think um, security in Northern Ireland and the impact of Brexit on the economy aside, sound a bit like an elite conflict. No, because our, these are the protection of our liberties. I mean, the, we don't have a written constitution. Our unwritten constitution, uncodified constitution, depends entirely on convention. It's vital to democracy that you don't lie to parliament. If you lie to parliament, voters have no way to make an informed choice if they're being fed lies. If you undermine the Supreme Court, you're undermining the rule of law. If you, I mean, it, 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 these things are but, but much should... more fundamental structural challenges to the way a democracy works. They are the route to a more authoritarian populism. I suppose if you're somebody whose family was caught up in the Windrush crisis, you might say, Boris Johnson lied to Parliament, but we were lied about. You called us illegal immigrants and you deported us and our landing cards were shredded. And that is worse. Well, on the record, that was the most terrible thing to do. I mean, I'm not defending the hostile environment. I mean, I'm not defending shredding people's immigration cards or lying about them. I mean, that is a, a terrible thing to do. But I suppose the thing I'm, I'm getting but, at but, isn't but, whether and, and you all, but, defend but, but, it. But you can't. But I think you also have to say, look, that is a terrible thing, but that does not mean it doesn't matter that Boris Johnson lied to Parliament, because that's where populism comes from. Populism is about finding a justified complaint, right? A wrong, a real wrong, and using that to trivialize 
the protections of our constitution and our democracy. Things are so bad, I don't give a flying F about parliament, lying to parliament, rule of law, the Supreme Court, because things are so bad, I want to change it. It's the instinct of the populist. It's the instinct of the revolutionary. It is everything that I'm against. But I think to loop back to the start of the question, it's about how you view people as individuals. And for Boris Johnson, his behavior, his time and power really profoundly impacts how you see him as an individual. But when it comes to people who you feel more ideologically aligned with or doing things that you thought were very important to safeguard the constitution, and who also these policies don't change how you see and, them And as who people. also seem to me to be diligent, serious, honest, uh, people who, if they made decisions that were deeply damaging... I felt were able privately to discuss those things, to own them, to acknowledge their mistakes. They may not always have done so in public, but that was not true of Boris Johnson. Confronted with some calamitous error that he'd make, he would just make a joke about it. I think if you sat down, I don't know whether she's ever prepared to open up, but if you sit down with Theresa May and you were to make that thing, I imagine she'd feel very defensive. I imagine she'd but I also believe that she's somebody who's capable of reflecting on that in a way that I don't think Boris Johnson is. Do you think that maybe you and I have very different views of the responsibilities of people in power? Because in a way, I'd feel relieved that Theresa May or Amber Rudd would have the capacity to feel a sense of guilt or remorse or shame for things that went wrong when they're in power. But ultimately, I don't care that much because what I care about is the injustice and the lack of action to fix it. But I think the risk of that, I mean, I can understand why you don't care. It seems like a kind of luxury to care. But the risk of that is that by not being attentive to the individuals and the way that the system works, the solutions that are produced are not solutions to the real problem. I mean, our democracy relies on people actually understanding how it works, not othering people. You know, we are projecting onto MPs a very peculiar vision, which we would never project onto a doctor or a teacher or any other human being. When it's really important that we can empathize and criticize them as individuals and their moral choices, because if we can't do that, we're not understanding what's going on. If you think, as many people seem to, that the Tory party is a fundamentally kind of evil operation it's where we're literally rubbing our hands together being like, how do I, this morning, how am I really going to fuck over poor people? How am I really going to make people's lives as miserable as possible? Because what I really get pleasure out of is destroying things, killing people. Right? I really want to kill 150,000 people with austerity. That's my aim, right? That we are somehow kind of genocidal maniacs. Um, it's not true. I mean, let, let me just begin with it. It's just not true. And I think understanding the truth and focusing on the details and caring about the details and truth is really important for engaging with the political system. And I think projecting onto people a vision of them, I think, is not helpful because it's... it's um, I mean, the interesting thing, I mean, it's, it's actually true in the fundamental relationship between Conservative and Labour Party, right? Fundamentally, the, my Conservative colleagues think the Labour Party are well-intentioned but misguided. 
the Labour Party basically think conservatives are evil. See, they, this, they, something, they, yeah. this is something I hear an awful lot. Um, and I think that, look, I'm not a Labour Party member. I was for about three seconds and then I wanted the £4 a month to spend on curly whirlies. Um, but I think this is something which is often said of the left is you think we're evil. You think that we're, mis- we're moustache twirling villains. We're dick dastardlies. And I think what that doesn't make room for is that there is a left wing critique of the structures, which says, I'm sure that you think you're doing good things, but this is what it's resulting in in terms of inequality or the impacts on people's lives or it's degradation of the environment. And I think that those outcomes are evil. It doesn't matter that you think that you've done good by participating in them. The, the problem is the outcome. And would you feel the same way about voting records? Say, look at the voting record, go, all this does is tell you as a Tory MP. You could look at OxyContin prescriptions from a doctor in the early 2000s, which may have killed hundreds of his patients or, you know, resulted in, you know, terrible addictions for them. And you go, well, all this tells you is that I was a doctor in the early 2000s. Sure, sure. So, so the question is, how much evil is an institution doing? I mean, that's what defines the question. Mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, I do not think it's an excuse for an SS officer to be like, yeah, sure, I signed up to the Nazis, but what was I supposed to do? I was an officer in the German army. It's not good enough, right? Uh, the question is, when do you reach a point at which your moral integrity and your view of good and evil makes you break them? And for me, that point came with a hard Brexit and Boris Johnson. That's the point at which I'm like, no, I'm no longer prepared to say I'm part of this tribe. I'm a Tory MP. I'm leaving. I think you reserve that for the moment in which you can see with real moral clarity that this is not it. It's not what you're prepared to do. But on your bigger point, I agree with you on structures. I think we disagree on what the structures are. But fundamentally, this book is about structures. It's about the fact that our first-past-the-post voting system is screwed and needs to be got rid of, that the Labour and Conservative parties are sclerotic, horrible, old-fashioned things, that the institution of the whips is mad, that the culture of the House of Commons is abusive, uh, bullying, that the workplace practices are beyond belief. I mean, I'm describing people who, when I make a speech in the House of Commons that they disagree with, come up from behind the speaker's chair and say they're going to punch me, right? This is not normal. I tried to guess who that was, but I couldn't work it out. This is not normal in the workplace. I'm obviously not telling you. (laughs) Um, So I think the system, the structures are fundamentally screwed. But my alternative to them is something that feels more like a New Zealand proportional representation electoral system. Uh, with smaller parties, fresh blood, more coalitions. It's a system where I want ministers to stay in for a minimum of two years instead of being reshuffled every few months. And I suspect from your point of view, that's tinkering around the edges because I'm still defending an improved version of a liberal democracy. Look, I think that some tinkering can be a good thing, right? I'm, I'm not one for letting the perfect be the enemy of the good. But I think that when you look at countries which have fairer electoral systems but are still deeply unequal, this is why I'm a Marxist and I'm not a liberal. It's because I believe that the politics you have are an expression of the class forces that you have in a society. I, I understand that, yeah. But I'm, I am, I am uh, part of the liberal centre-right. Yeah. Well, for now. We've still got half an hour left of this interview. Um 
I mean, we had a previous conversation when we met for this BBC thing. And one of the things that you talked about was that you viewed the 19th century as a kind of parliamentary golden age and that there was a connection between speaking well and governing well. Um, Could you tell me more about what you think about that? Yeah, I think that for better or for worse, a country that has an unwritten constitution and this kind of parliament is deeply dependent on the particular, too dependent on the particular values and unwritten conventions of the people in the place. And parliament, parliament literally means a talking shop in French. And this thing was set up for oratory and rhetoric and debate. The way in which people process things in the 19th century was through talking very, very deftly and precisely and beautifully about problems. If you read the debate in the 1860s on an intervention in Afghanistan, the level of knowledge, the fluency of the arguments, I think actually really helped to prevent what would have been a catastrophic British involvement between the First and Second Anglo-Afghan Wars. And, And that's utterly lost. And it's been lost for a number of reasons. It's been lost because there are no longer people who've been trained to do that. It's been lost because the newspapers don't report. I mean, you know, the Times used to carry parliamentary speeches on its front page. You'd read every word of them. We've gone to a world in which Parliament is marginalized. It doesn't really matter. I mean, it's one of the things you were saying to me on the uh, outside um, outside ABC. So I thought was very interesting. You were saying, listen, really part of your problem is that you still think that Parliament matters. It doesn't matter. It's about money. It's about the media. It's about you know, bankers. It's about big financial structures. And really the story of the 20th century compared to the 19th century is that actually in the 19th century, parliament was a much more significant institution with fewer competitors. And we now live in a much more complex, vigorous world with a much richer, more diverse civil society surrounding. It's not very surprising that what happens in parliament doesn't really matter. Because I I suppose I've been thinking about that conversation um, ever since we had it. And then again, when I was reading this book and... I was thinking, okay, so what accounts for this change in terms of oratory? Do you think that oratory has an inflated importance when there's fewer people you have to persuade? Because the 19th century is a period of time where the majority of adults couldn't vote. They couldn't participate yeah, yeah. in the democratic process. Well, even even more in the 18th century, I mean, I've been reading a biography of, of Lawrence Stern, who wrote the, the amazing book, Tristram Shandy. And he was a political activist uh, for the Whigs in Yorkshire in the uh, mid mid uh, early to mid 1700s. He, the most important thing in defining these campaigns will be a eight-page, incredibly beautifully written, elaborate um, satire uh, using Latin quotes, bizarre references, uh, pokes at other people's anonymity. I mean, it's a really complicated bit of prose. And when it works in a broadsheet, it's like reprinted in the London broadsheets and everyone's like, whoa, we've just lost the York election because this guy's just written something which today you would really kind of struggle to get into the Paris Review. So, and why is that? That's because the electors of York are a few hundred doctors, clergymen, school teachers, and property owners um, who think that politics is about reading six-page screeds and newsletters. Um, We obviously do not live in that world. We live in a mass democracy in which most people spend about nine minutes a day thinking about politics. That's another big change, right? The 
18th and 19th century was obsessed with politics, particularly men, because men were voters, really felt that this was the subject. They would bore on about it at dinner. They would read books about it. They would, you know, they would, Gladstone would address crowds of kind of 20,000 people. I mean, one of the things that my partner accuses me of, and it's very annoying because I think he might be right, is that I'm obsessed with how people talk because ultimately I've got too much love and psychological investment in bourgeois norms, right? He'll say that this is just class politics writ large. Here's the barrier and it's Latin. And you're obsessed with what's on the other side of the barrier. And so that's why you like William Shakespeare and Chaucer and stuff like that. I He'd hope, say that this is class writ large. Yeah, I hope I hope not Jacob Rees-Mock. Um, <laughs> the, um, uh, yeah, I mean, I think... Well, so Michael Ignatieff, who's this friend of mine who ran to be the leader of the Liberal Party in Canada, acknowledges this head on. And he would say, and he says, and I quote him in Politics on the Edge in this book, and he's just you know, written a review in The Atlantic in which he basically says, as far as he's concerned, that he and I are basically the same person. We come from these sort of liberal, in his case, kind of Russian aristocratic background and that we are living out fantasies of public service which have more to do with our parents and grandparents than it really has to do with the modern world and that this is doesn't make any sense because you end up thinking, and maybe you know, his analysis of the book is this is somebody who thinks he's sort of too clever and too honorable for everybody else and that, um, and that he doesn't get you know, what he would say is that's almost the reverse of what you would say. He would say Rory doesn't get that politics is a team sport. He doesn't get that it's all about loyalty. That he doesn't get that what he should have done, basically, I think the implication is I should have buckled to uh, Boris Johnson and stayed in the cabinet and I'd probably be prime minister by now. Play the game until you get an opportunity to stab someone in the kidneys. Yeah, yeah, that's good to stab them in the kidneys, yeah. Um, and I, I was interviewed by an MP recently. He was just like, I don't get you at all. So, I mean, I'm in an odd world where, obviously, from your point of view, I'm nothing like idealistic enough. I'm complicit in an entire system where my voting record is horrible. At the same time, the critique coming to me from most working politicians is, Rory, you're a complete weird, non-team playing, overly idealistic person who just doesn't get how the system works. And if you just stuck with it, you know, you would be foreign secretary by now, you'd probably be prime minister by now, who knows? Right? But, you, but you know, why, for example, I keep getting texts, why, for example, am I not running to be the Tory candidate for the Mayor of London? Well, not running to be the Tory candidate for the Mayor of London because I'm not prepared to sign up to attacking Sadiq Khan's ULEZ. So I don't know what the, the story is in politics, whether the story is that I'm a horrible, compromised person who's just bad at everyone else, or whether I'm not compromising enough and not Machiavellian enough. What's for sure is I'm not succeeding as a politician. Well, let's get away from like what story, you know, you, you have in politics. And maybe I want to ask you about something which isn't in the book. There's no mention in the book at all about the fact that you're chair of Le Cercle, which is an invitation only foreign policy institute. And you were at the time sitting on the Foreign Affairs Committee and then the Defence Committee. So relevant committees to disclose this activity. Why is there no mention of it in the book? And, and why didn't you declare it? Um, well, I think, I mean, I haven't actually been asked about this before, so let me try to get my head straight on this. It's an organization which has, um, 
which I was I took over from I think Norman Lamont, uh, who I think in turn took over from a Tory MP called Julian Amory. It was a um, a kind of I guess conservative leaning, pretty pretty conservative leaning, a foreign policy group that includes. Uh, people from all around the world. And I think it had originally been set up in the 70s and 80s, probably pretty aligned with the view of the Cold War. I mean, it was quite a sort of right-wing view. By it the was time, very anti-communist. Anti-communist, um, yeah. Very supportive of apartheid South Africa, right. less for the race stuff and more because of its role as a bulwark against socialism in Africa. By the time I got to it, um, it wasn't that at all. By the time I got to it, it was something that met... Uh, and invited speakers. And those speakers uh, were, um, you know, American bureaucrats, administrators, professors, experts on China, experts on the Middle East. So it was a sort of, um, I think if I had a complaint about it, uh, I'd sort of question what it achieved. It was two days of sitting and uh, listening to... Um, the sort of people that you might hear talk at Chatham House. So, uh, so I but would. But why feel, is it so secretive if it's not a big deal? Uh, it, it isn't secretive. I mean, it just. I for some reason, its tradition is that its members, uh, and this is true also for other things I've been to. Bilderberg is another example. Um, I've just been to a conference in the United States, which is organised by Silicon Valley, which is another one where you're not allowed to say who attends. I'm not quite sure why they do those things. I mean, I'm very comfortable saying that I've been to those things. I've also been to the Trilateral Commission. Um, I'd tell you if I'd been to Davos. Mm -hmm. I was a young global leader at Davos. I mean, I'm part of all these things. I mean, I go to all these things, but I, I don't feel that I, given I'm not paid by these things, I don't think I'm declaring that I've been to the Trilateral Commission or I'm doing something with a circle. Oh, no, 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 I'm not no, I'm not no. asking, like, why don't you declare it all the time? Every time you come into a room, be like, by the way. No, no, but even but, in the House but, of Commons. The House but of but Commons, when you were on two relevant so committees, the, so you then, were chairing this yeah. organization. Fine. So the question is conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. You declare if there's a conflict of interest. You declare if you feel that anything that you're doing in the Foreign Affairs Committee or as chair of the Defence Committee is in any way a conflict of interest with the fact that I am spending two days a year listening to different people talking to me about China, Russia, and the rest, or that I'm going to the Bilderberg, which incidentally is a bigger version of the same thing, right? Nobody's asked me to declare that, or maybe they are, or the Trilateral Commission. But isn't which there I also a problem that to. it's you that gets to make the call of whether that's a relevant conflict of interest rather than there be rather than there being some kind of oversight? No, there, where... there is oversight, yeah. It, the, the call is made by the Parliamentary Commissioner. Mm-hmm. That's the person who determines whether something needs to be declared or not. And after you, it was Nadim Zahawi. And again, I'm still not sure what this organization does. And I'm not saying it's all it's cloak a, and dagger and poison yeah, pens, yeah, but yeah. what is it? It's, it's, a, it's exactly the same as a kind of mini little Davos. It's a group of people who sit in an overheated seminar room uh, in a hotel and invite speakers. And, you know, they are... Many of them are academics, many of them are specialists. So normally the uh, agenda would be, we need to get someone to give a speech on China. And people sit around and ask him questions. And he goes away again. I mean, it's not, it's not, um, I mean, that's why I don't feel it's a conflict of interest. And I didn't feel I needed to declare it. 
Because I guess the reason why I'm asking is that one of the things that it's hard to talk about is the relationship or the extent of a relationship between elected politicians and intelligence services. You try and open the box and suddenly you sound like you've got a tinfoil hat. And then the very sensible things to never talk about it at all if you want to have a nice career in journalism. Sure. Well, I think these are good questions to ask. I think the intelligence services and their connection to politics is a big question. I think there is a tinfoil hat edge of that. Um, I mean, there's no doubt the intelligence services appear to have been involved in bugging politicians in the 60s and 70s, were deeply involved in all nana policy, will often provide off-the-record briefing to members of parliament that I'm suspicious of because it seems to me that they're relying on their charisma and their James Bond reputation to be able to sort of nod and wink you know, this is what's going on, this is what you need to know about the world. You know, I felt that with Iraq and Afghanistan, that often when I said to politicians, this is a disgrace, we're not making any difference, this is a failure, people would say, oh, no, Rory, you know, I've had a chat to, you know, the intelligence services or the army, and they're giving me an off-the-record briefing, and it's all going swimmingly. So I think there is that problem. I didn't personally, in my whole time in politics, encounter... British intelligence agents coming to try to tell me what to do or pay me money or threaten me or any of that kind of stuff. Um, and I don't think that, and I think that- Were there are, any of the off-the-record briefings? Uh, I, I got uh, briefings when I was a foreign office minister, definitely. Um, I went into CMI6. I was briefed on what they thought was happening in Africa. Um, I was briefed on their position in Middle East and Asia. I was a member of the National Security Council. I read classified secret reporting. But I think my instinct is you're more on the money when you say that the problem in British society is that it's run by finance and capitalism than that it's run by intelligence agencies. I, I wonder how you make sense of your own class position and involvement in politics, because when I was reading this book, it seemed that all of the people who had heroic roles were a kind of posh person who I would summarize as smelling a bit like dog. So not flash, quite humble, self-deprecating, um, own dogs like to get muddy. And that's kind of a type. Actually, it's interesting. I mean, so uh, David Gork, who's the real hero of the book, is the son of a police officer um, and not a very senior police officer and I think went to a state school. I think Theresa May is the son of a clergyman and also didn't go to a fee-paying school. I mean, in fact, probably my heroes in class terms are people who traditionally would be described as the lower middle class, not not sort of dog-smelling posh people. But do you see what I mean by the type, that it's a sort of recognisable type in, yeah, in well, the, the, the British the people, class I think, hierarchy? I, yes, I think the, the, these are types where what we have in common is almost all of us have parents who were civil servants, clergy people, police officers, army officers, rather than parents who were journalists, bankers, plutocrats. I mean, thinking about the role of of parents, I mean, it's very, very different. But my mum's career was in social services and child protection. And as a result, I really lionize social services. I really think they're as close as you can get to angels on earth because that's my mum and I love her and I think her work's very meaningful. Um, your father, who, who you talk very, very affectionately about in the book, was 
a colonial official in Malaysia during a time where the British army was doing some really nasty things. And and then a British intelligence officer. And then a British intelligence yeah, officer. Um, I don't want to invite you to talk smack about about your dad, but it's more that. So I can. See, do I, you romanticize this role that Britain had in the world, perhaps because you really love your dad? Yes, partly. Um, I can also see that there were things that were badly wrong about the way that he viewed the world. I mean, we didn't view the world in the same way. I think that I saw in a way that he wouldn't have seen almost immediately when I arrived in Iraq, that it was unjust that we were there and that we were not doing any good. And I think he probably would have continued to believe. Because actually those things were, I mean, that's where Jeremy Corbyn's complete, right? When he says these things are sort of neo-imperial colonial, it's indistinguishable. And my father recognized everything that was happening in Iraq and Afghanistan through the lens of being a colonial officer in Malaya and saw the choices in the same way. And I realized, I think, in a way that was more difficult for him to realize that how radically the world had changed and that this is entirely illegitimate. And I'm not a defender of the British Empire. He was. And in the moment he died, he was full of, you know, we made so much difference. We built all these schools. We built all these railroads. He went back to the 50th, uh, anniversary of the independence celebrations in in Malaysia was invited to sit in the stand along with other um, along with other former colonial officers and remained very very close to Malaysians he'd worked with. Did you ever talk about that period of colonial history with him? Yes, 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 yes. And it was pretty disturbing. I mean, he he um, you know he, as far as I could see, seemed to be um, open to the idea of torturing witnesses to get information. How do you relate to a parent when they're saying these things? How does it feel? Well, it's it's difficult. It's difficult. I mean, it's difficult because I loved him very much and he was a very, very wonderful father. And I got a note uh, a week ago from one of his friends saying that he'd been a bit troubled by the way that I was talking about my father and did I remember how much my father loved me? Of course I remember how much he loved me. He really loved me. And he was, a, for a small boy, he was the most affectionate. He'd wake up at you know, I was allowed to go down as soon as I woke up in the morning, which was before six in the morning, and poke him, and he'd roll out of bed, and he'd spend the first three hours of every morning playing with me before he went off to school. Before I went off to school, he went off to, to work. Um, but yes, at the same time, it's not pleasant to take on side those sides of his personality. I mean, I, you know, he and talking about projections, I mean, his vision for me is he felt I, wanted me to be Archbishop of Canterbury, which I think was his way of saying that he saw this small boy as being somehow not really worldly. And for him being worldly, I mean, he would never have, if George Osborne had, I mean, he said this to me at the time, you know, George Osborne said to me, you know, if you go and vote against me, I'm not going to promote you for five years. So I went and voted against him. And my father was like, what are you doing? It was ridiculous. You know, vote with the government, get a job, get stuff done. You've got to be inside the tent. Um, so that's difficult because I've made a big moral decision that's left me on the back benches for five years. And he doesn't agree with it. So I think, but it's also, I think, having somebody that much, he was 50 when I was born, he'd fought in the Second World War, been in the British Empire, and he's almost like a Victorian figure. Having someone that you love deeply, who's that different and that anachronistic, I think it's part of my affection for, tolerance for, 
all those other bits of British history. Do you ever feel suspicious of your own desire for power or saying that public service and you achieving a powerful position are the same thing? Yes. I mean, the basic um, alibi for the upper classes for two or three millennia has been to say we're privileged and as a result we're going to go out and do public service and that somehow that makes the privilege okay. I think that's better than the Boris Johnson, Jacob Rees-Mogg view, which seems to be we get the privilege and we don't <laughs> give monkeys about any of the other stuff. We're just going to have we're just going to have fun. Um, but I'm very conscious that it's um, that it is not an excuse for privilege. That I can't say I've been incredibly lucky in life and I'm in a very fortunate position, and that somehow that's made okay by the fact that I go and work for a charity or I go and you know I serve as an MP. Um, and I struggle all the time because I don't know whether I'm doing any good. I mean, I failed to defeat Boris Johnson. I failed to stop no-deal Brexit. I failed to stop my party lurching towards the populist right. I'm deeply, deeply unpopular with many, many people in the country on both right and left who think that I'm a sort of pusillanimous, insincere, um, fast-talking huckster who's somehow trying to present himself as a secular saint. So I have absolutely no idea whether my whether it makes sense to say that I have a duty in life to try to continue to engage in public service or whether I just walk away from the field and say, all I do is cause trouble. And I think this relates slightly to our earlier conversation about you know what, what's the position of the global north against the global south? Are we saying, got all this privilege and therefore we have a duty to try to make the world a better place? Or are we saying, actually, the whole thing is so screwed, this injustice is so extreme, our position is so compromised, we'd be better just backing off and not pretend to get involved. My solution to this is radical decentralization. My solution to this is to say we need to smash up the power of Westminster and drive power down to much, much more local level that where I think both the Labour Party and the Conservative Party are part of a conspiracy of madness is that they're centralizers. They're people who are trying to draw power into the center and give it away. I mean, you talked about your dad's dream for you being the Archbishop of Canterbury, which is in a way him saying, I don't want you to have to get your hands dirty. I want you to have this kind of, you know, more cerebral and moral experience of the world. When it comes to your own kids, you go, I actually don't want you to do what I did. And maybe I just want you to be oh, I definitely happy. Don't, I definitely want, don't want to be politics. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. I'm essentially teasing you by trying to encourage you to do it. It's the. It yeah, is, I think that's an exquisite form of vengeance for everything yeah, I've tweeted it, about you. Exactly, exactly. It's a, a taking vengeance. It is the most painful, unpleasant job imaginable, and I really think that encouraging people to do it, you you encourage people to go into politics because you feel you ought to encourage people to go into politics because you want to live in a world where good people are going into politics. Right. I like the idea of someone like you going into politics, but if you honestly said to me. If you'd flipped it around and said, Rory, I'm thinking of going to politics, what's going to be like? I would have given you a one-hour lecture on why you are making a massive mistake and it's a horrible thing to do to your life. That seems like a really good place to end. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you.
We're up against obscene wealth and influence in the media. And it's hard out there for independent platforms trying to do things differently. So if you can, please consider donating one hour of your wage per month or whatever you can afford so that we can bring you even more of the kinds of podcasts, videos, and political analysis that you won't find anywhere else. Just go to navara.media forward slash support to set up a regular donation of any size. We couldn't do it without you. So thank you.